Welcome to Gateway Community Church. I'm Matthew. I'm Pravina. I'm Naomi. And today is the third Sunday of Advent. During Advent, we celebrate the birth of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Each week, we celebrate a different part of the story. Today, we celebrate the wise men who symbolize faith. A reading from the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you, house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows to reject the wrong and choose the right, and the land of two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now a reading from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in the Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Maggie from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star where it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star has appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened the treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's close our eyes and bow our head. Thank you, Father, for revealing to the wise man that Jesus was born. Grow our faith that we may welcome you into our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, Gateway. I'm John Malella, and I'll be speaking today as we continue our Christmas series, More Than We Expected. 
Ed Allen led off the series a couple weeks ago with a fascinating survey of the time between the Old Testament and the New, a 400-year period in which God may have been silent, but he was certainly active as he was arranging circumstances on the world stage to prepare the world for the arrival of his son. Last week, Dean Salami brought us a great message about how Joseph and Mary's lives were tossed upside down as they traded their dreams of a nice quiet life, white picket fence and a house in the suburbs for the difficult privilege of raising God's son. Now today, we're gonna to look at several more characters in this Jesus birth story who also get more than they expected. Pray with me, please. Lord, your words have power. They have power to heal. They have power to repair. They have power to save. And I pray that today, Lord, my words would be your words, that everything that we hear today would, would be from you, and that you would use this time we have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the passage that the Kodaman Chili family read to us, we have the story of the Magi, or wise men. You may have heard them referenced as the three kings, although our passage doesn't tell us how many there actually were, or even that they were kings. But in this passage, we see a very rare occurrence recorded in the Bible. What we see is a group of foreigners who are seeking to travel into Israel, and they're not coming to invade, or to spy, or on a purely political mission. Instead of spear, javelin, and sword, they carry precious metals and very expensive ointment and incense, gifts fit for a king. So who were these foreigners? You know, traditionally, they've been called the wise men. Uh, that's actually an older English translation of the Persian word magi, which is used here. So what do we know about them? Well, the magi were almost certainly astrologers from either Persia or Babylon, ancient Iraq. The ancient world was fascinated with astronomical phenomena, and some devoted their lives to discern how the stars and planets might influence human life. In the royal courts of Persia, magi interpreted dreams, predicted the future, and were relied on for special wisdom. Magi were in the king's court in Daniel and were called upon to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So in their home country of Persia, the magi, in the course of their observing and studying the night sky, saw something that spoke to them. They saw some kind of phenomenon that made them think a king was being born in neighboring Israel, the king of the Jews. And that puts me in mind of Psalm 8, where it reads, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies display his handiwork. You know, pioneering missionaries have written accounts similar to this, that when they shared the Jesus story with certain people groups for the first time, these groups were somehow, they were ready to hear it. They were, they were um, somehow prepared for this story by what they had observed in the sky. So although these magi were most likely not kings themselves, they were probably commissioned by the royal court of Persia to visit this new king to pay homage to him. So they traveled by caravan, probably close to a thousand miles, and it would have taken them some months. We know it was a large caravan because it was big enough to attract attention when they entered the city of Jerusalem. And of course, where else would you expect to find a king? You would go to the capital city, probably in the palace. So they show up at King Herod's palace and they ask, 
where is the newborn king of the Jews? And I love the brevity here of Matthew's description. He writes, Herod was disturbed. Who was this Herod? You know, Ed talked a little bit about him a couple weeks ago when he talked about the time in between the, the New Testament and Old Testament, the intertestamental time is what scholars call it. Um, he was a ruler, really set up by the Roman overlords to rule over Judea, the large part of Israel. By this time, he's been in power for probably close to 30 years. Um, by race, he was an Idumean, uh, so he would have been seen as, as uh, probably a half-Jew. He personally knew Roman commanders, including Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, and Augustus. Historians tell us that Herod had some outstanding accomplishments, including the rebuilding of the Masada Fortress, establishing the cities and new industries, and the crowning achievement of rebuilding and expanding Solomon's temple. But they also tell us that Herod was ruthless in eliminating all potential rivals. He went through wives, like some of us go through cars, and he killed a few of his sons who he suspected were plotting against him. And you thought politics in America was rough. So Herod, this Herod is disturbed. Can you picture the scene, the Magi show up in Jerusalem, and picture the court attendant coming in to see Herod. Sire, there is an entourage from Persia that has arrived unannounced. And I picture Herod saying, tell them I'm busy. Sire, they say they're here to see the king of the Jews. Tell them the king of the Jews is busy. Sire, they're not asking for you. They're asking to see the newborn king of the Jews. I can picture Herod's face and the smile frozen as he received this entourage. Welcome to Judea. My subjects will show you to your quarters. And as soon as they left and the door closed, I can picture him saying, I want the priests, the soothsayers. I want all of these scholars in here now. Tell me, where is the Messiah to be born? Now, Herod obviously was no Bible scholar. He probably thought, well, he's too important. He's too busy running the country to be concerned with the nuances of religion. Uh, I've got staff for that, he probably thought. And thankfully for the health and future employment of his religious staff, he asked them a fairly easy question. And anyone familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah knew that if you go into the, the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, it tells us where the Messiah is going to be born. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So even if Herod at this point doesn't think this message has a divine source, he knows that there are people who do believe in this Bethlehem prophecy. And the word is out now that there's a king and actually, did you catch what Herod said? He said Messiah, not just a king, but the king. Messianic hopes had saturated Israel for hundreds of years, and the expectation was rampant that a king would rise up, God would raise up a new son of David that would restore Israel to her former glory. That expectation included the removal of Roman overlords, which did not sit well with a puppet king who served at the pleasure of Rome. 
So Herod immediately sees this as a threat, and he has a secret meeting with the Magi. He doesn't share this plan with anyone else because he doesn't trust anyone. He keeps this close to the chest. So he sends the Magi out. Verse 8 of Matthew's chapter reads, He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. It's interesting that Herod thinks nothing of giving orders to foreign dignitaries. Now, why not send his own people out to search for this Messiah? Oh, he's keeping this as low-key as possible. Sending out his own entourage will certainly attract unwanted attention and maybe give unwanted credence that they may, there may be a new king. He wants this top secret. So the Magi go as they're told, and they're still following the star and according to verse 10, they approach the little town of Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Do you know why this song has that name? Because, oh, really, really, really little town of Bethlehem doesn't sound as good when you put it to music. Compared to Jerusalem with its magnificent palace and Temple Mount, Bethlehem was a shantytown. It would have been very easy for the Magi to think as they approached, uh, we, we must have the wrong address. There is no way a king would be here. But according to Matthew's account, they saw the star and they were overjoyed. And it says they gave their gifts. They bowed down and they worshiped the child. And then they went home by a different route because God had warned them in a dream, don't go back to Herod. So here we see God is giving guidance in dreams to these foreigners as well, just as he gave dream guidance to Joseph, as Dean told us last week. So a couple of things that I think are going on here. One, what this shows me is that God has a heart for the outsider. God has a heart for the outsider. It's striking to consider that in Matthew's gospel, which is considered by scholars the most Jewish of the gospels, uh, it's, it's structured almost like the Torah, like the five books of the Bible. And, and other scholars have said it, it really appears that Matthew has had rabbinical training. You can see it in his, in his language, in the way he writes. The account of a group of outsiders coming to look for Jesus is in this gospel, is in this biography of Jesus. God shows his heart for them, for these outsiders, and that he found a way that would speak to them to draw them to Jesus. The only way that they found Jesus is really because God found them first. Now, did you notice they didn't have the scriptures? But God used the star to lead them to, um, to the scriptures in, in a way. What, what Matthew's giving us here is almost like a, a mini, mini theology of how he speaks to the world. He gave them a natural phenomenon, the star. It got them as far as Jerusalem, but they needed the Bible to get them to Bethlehem. And we see that many times. You can think of almost, um, theologians say that, that God has two books, one of nature and God has, has the Bible. The book of nature could point us toward God, but it's only the Bible that's going to point us toward Jesus. God has a heart for the outsider. So what does this mean for the insiders, for those who are already in uh, who've made that connection to Jesus. For those of us who count ourselves as, as insiders, it means a couple things. One is, God is always looking to expand the family. He's always looking to expand the family. So that means we have to be willing to open our hearts to others. 
You know, that's one of our seven healthy habits of spiritual life. Uh, and every year at Gateway, we, we talk through this. Ed will preach through this usually once a year. We call it up in and out. Um, uh, open our hearts to people in need is the O and out. It means that God is going to bring people into our lives who do not look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't think like us. They don't believe exactly like us. You know, I think of this church. I think of the people who God has brought here over the past few years. Many of them, they're not even born here. English is not their first language. Before the pandemic, um, on a Sunday morning, looking around, do you, know, do you know what the church looked like? Do you know what that church, this church is starting to look like? I think it's starting to look like heaven. John writes in Revelation uh, chapter 7, verse 9, he says, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, are standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. We need to, to take this to heart, that God has a heart for the outsiders, and he's bringing them in. So for the, for the insiders, the question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to see these outsiders as God sees them? Are we going to welcome them? And for those who might be listening, for others of you, maybe you are still, you're still looking. Uh, you're, you're seeking. The Jesus story is, is interesting to you, or you're somehow connected to Jesus, but you still feel like an outsider. I can relate to that. I've been a Jesus follower for several decades, but I still struggle with feeling like an outsider. I'm, I am one of those non-joiners. If it wasn't for church, I wouldn't join anything. And if you're in that bucket, God has a heart for you. He's looking for you. If you're outside the family, he is looking to share his life with you, to adopt you, to bring you in. Now, the second point I'd like to make about this passage is I believe what we're looking at here today in miniature are really the only two fully informed human responses to the news about the Messiah. I believe Herod and the Magi illustrate for us what are really the only two choices we have when confronted with the news about Jesus. For the Magi, the news of a king's birth brought forth worship. It was worth the inconvenience and danger to travel for months to see Jesus, to be in his presence, to worship this new king. They planned for this. They arranged their lives for this. They postured themselves for this response, worship. Herod's response was different. For Herod, what the Magi had heard as good news, he heard as threat. What they saw as a sign of divine favor, he saw as a pretender gunning for his throne. And his response was, wage war. Our passage doesn't cover it, but if you read on in the chapter, it's not a good story. There's a reason why Herod asked the Magi when they saw the star, because based on that timetable, he plans and carries out the unthinkable, the slaughter of what were probably dozens of innocent children trying to eliminate his rival. And at least some of you might be thinking now, wait, Wait, I'm, I'm not totally in with Jesus. Um, I think he was, you know, he was great or a great teacher or you know, did, did great things. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not all in with him now. Does that, does that make me a bad person? Um, does that make me Herod? Um, 
Isn't that a little extreme, preacher man? And if that's you today, I can say that um, I, I get it because I was there once. There was a time in my life when I wasn't all in with Jesus. I didn't have any animosity toward him. I, just, I really just wanted to live the way I wanted to live. And I looked at it as I would be giving that up if I acknowledged him and opened up to him. And I lived that way for years. And my life was messy and needlessly painful. Look, like Herod, I wanted to rule my own life, my own kingdom. But I got, I got tired. I got tired of trying to keep my kingdom together. And one day in my room on the first floor of a two-family house on a dead-end street in Queens with the cemetery on the corner, that's how you know it's Queens, I knelt down and I told God, I'm in. I'm tired of fighting you. So take my ratty, moth-eaten kingdom and make something of it. You know, the Bible calls this belief, believing in. Um, and it's, from then on, I believed in Jesus. It's not a mental assent, not just an agreement, but a whole person response to Jesus' invitation. And from that moment on, so long ago, I was his and he was mine. So again, I believe this passage illustrates that humans only have two choices when confronted with Jesus. Will we be Herod? Herod got more than what he expected. To him, it looked like he was just quashing the latest competition for the throne. Instead, he found himself fighting against God. He went all the way to mass murder to ensure that his kingdom was secure, and it wasn't. He lost it all. And what about us? Are we going to desperately grasp onto our shabby little kingdoms? Or will we be the Magi? The Magi got more than they expected. They thought they would be paying homage to a new king. They didn't realize that they would be the first humans in recorded history to worship God in the flesh. They didn't understand everything, but they were willing to recognize and yield to the greatness of the Messiah. So when confronted with the kingship of Jesus, what will we choose? Will we choose warfare or worship? Let's pray. Lord, you have put us at a point of decision. And I, I pray for us, Lord, that we would, we would choose you. Lord, for some people here, that it might be the, the first time in their lives where they've been brought to this point. And um, I, I, I pray for them, Lord, that they would make that decision. And for others of us, Lord, that may have gotten stale or grown cold, um, Lord, I pray that you would, you would renew us. Because today we, we say yes to you, Lord. We, we choose worship. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.